The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Back to business as usual. All right, so we took the last six weeks or so to, uh, to talk about uh, our presentation of the gospel, going through um, the tract of two ways to live. And now we're going back to what we had been doing before then, uh, which is our kind of Keeping Promises series. If you remember, so just as a brief kind of overview, even back when I, when I first started, we started going through systematic theology on Wednesday night. And uh, as part of that, we kind of got to the moment where we're talking about God's real plan for salvation, how, how he worked through his people in the Old Testament. And so we paused that. And literally have been going step by step through Old Testament and New since then. With a few little breaks here and there. But, but basically I've been going through Old and New Testament. And, and even the stuff in the middle that's not even in the Bible. The stuff in the history in between. And been looking at all those things. And, and the, the goal really is to do several things. It's not just to go verse by verse through Scripture. But it's also in taking into account what's in Scripture, also to talk about what's also going on behind the scenes, what is going on in history at the time, and kind of develop a, a full worldview of the first century world that we're in, or, or whatever century we're in. And, um, and so in doing that, there's, there's got to be some other considerations that we're, we're taking into account. There's other things that we're thinking about, rather than just going verse by verse through the Bible. And so some of that is what we're going to be talking about tonight as when we're, we're looking at the gospel, it's one thing to try to go chronologically through the story of the scriptures, but that gets very difficult to do it at certain points because you're not sure what happens, what happens next. And so tonight, we're going to kind of take a step back and really look at four different aspects of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to spend a good deal of time on his teaching and his preaching uh, for the next few weeks. Uh, and then we'll kind of move on to some other things. So, um, so, in doing that, let's just kind of remember where we were the last time uh, we, we were in this series. Um, politics and religion deeply intertwined in first century Israel, first century Judea. And obviously the, the atmosphere that's going on at the time is really sensitive because you've got a kind of a place here in uh, Israel where Rome owns the nation, is essentially in control of the nation. As we saw from that intertestamental period, we had times where the Greeks were in control, we had times where the Ptolemies were in control, we had times where different groups were in control, really mostly Greek, um, were in control, and then finally the Romans come in. But remember, Israel at this moment, according to Rome, is sort of a kind of client state where they don't have to oversee them in the sense of sending all their soldiers there and make sure they're maintaining peace. They really care about two main things, which is that the state of Israel is peaceful and they continue to pay their taxes. Those are the main two concerns that they've got. And as long as they've got that, then they kind of put some little governors in place. And so when we see Pontius Pilate come onto the scene, that's essentially what he is. He is effectively a guy who is a kind of a, uh, a governor, as it were, that, uh, that, that Rome puts there, and his job is simply to keep the peace. So when you see the Jews are coming in, and they, they've got this kind of uh, 
pitchfork mentality, torches and pitchforks. They want to kill this, Messiah, this so-called Messiah named Jesus. And they're, they're coming to him and they're saying, hey, we're going to riot, right? That's what he's feeling on the doorstep, on his doorstep when they come to his house. Hey, if you don't do what we're telling you, then this place is going to blow up. This is a powder keg about to explode. And so for Pilate, in crucifying Jesus, that's a peacekeeping strategy that he's trying to do with the, the nation as a whole. And that's the reason why, is because if things blow up out of control, Rome's going to come in and get rid of Pilate, and they're going to bring in their military, and they're going to squash everybody. It's going to become a basically a puppet state of Rome. And so religion and politics are so intertwined, you cannot separate the two. The Jews even, the, the Sanhedrin, when they decide, hey, look, we've got to kill Jesus. As soon as he raises Lazarus from the dead, we've got to kill this guy. The reason they want to kill him is because if Rome gets wind of this, they're going to come in and squash everything that we got going on here. So it's all connected, deeply uh, intertwined. And so within that context of this sort of powder keg of religion and politics, here comes this man in John chapter 3 named Nicodemus who is part of the Sanhedrin. And so he comes to Jesus, and he has to ask him a few questions because he's seeing some of his miracles, he's hearing some of the things that he's saying, and he's going, clearly this guy has something, but I'm not sure what. And so if you notice in John chapter 3, he goes to him at night. And there's a key reason, obviously, why he goes to him at night. Because given the kind of state that he's in, in Israel, where politics and religion, all this, what does it say when a member of the Sanhedrin goes to this sort of rabble-rouser named Jesus and begins kind of entertaining some of his thoughts? Not a member of the Sanhedrin, not an official teacher in Jerusalem, but one who kind of goes around. Obviously, it becomes you know, pretty interesting. So Jesus, for his part, responds to Nicodemus in not so kind a way. Nicodemus says that we, we know that you've got something to do with God, but we're not quite sure what it is. And Jesus says, hey, if you, unless you're born again, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is like, what, born again? How can I yeah, enter back into my mom's womb? And Jesus is like, how can a teacher in Israel be so stupid? I mean, basically. Is how he responds to him. And so Jesus is not really too uh, kind with his, his ignorance. He finds it unacceptable uh, for a teacher in Jerusalem. And so according to Christ, when he's presenting this to him, uh, he tells him, look, you've got to be born again. In other words, he goes on to explain that unless one is regenerated, uh, born, in other words, from the Spirit. I don't think it advanced to the next slide, did it? There it is. In, in order for someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They have to be born again. Or another way to translate born again is born from above. It can mean both things. Nicodemus obviously hears born again, as in goes back into his mom's womb. And Jesus is obviously implying, by saying born again, born from above, because then he goes on to talk about the Spirit must do this, essentially. And so with that in mind, now we're going to transition into Jesus' ministry and a particular aspect of Jesus' ministry, namely his teaching. And, and these two things, this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus' teaching, actually kind of go hand in hand. And I want to 
try to show that to you tonight if we can. Um, the gospel accounts, they highlight several of the central concerns of Jesus' ministry. Obviously, his preaching, his teaching, his miracles, and exorcism. And we've kind of, some of this is overlapping from Sunday because we've been talking about this in building blocks as we've gone through, as we're going through Mark. Um, but each of these ministry aspects, aspects of Jesus' ministry, have particular things that need uh, our consideration. So we're going to spend uh, at least the next few weeks on his, his preaching and teaching, namely what we're going to be talking about tonight, and then going through some of the things that he's teaching over the next few weeks, and actually look deeply in, in the Bible to see what he's saying and what he's meaning, so he can kind of help us to interpret the Bible. But, so the, these are the four main aspects of his teaching. And you know, obviously, his miraculous works exorcism uh, that he does of of demons, of demon-possessed people. Obviously, all of those create this kind of buzz. It's driving the crowds wild. Uh, Jesus is the Beatles, right? Coming into town, everybody's going, Hey, Jesus is here! They're going looking for him. They're trying to find what hotel he's staying in. They're going everywhere, right? Uh, As soon as he gets off the plane, going crazy, right? So they're, they're trying to find where he is. And as much as we look at his miracles throughout the Gospels and think, you know, that, that's a massive part of his ministry, honestly, the preaching and teaching is more to the core of what his ministry actually is. It's central to his ministry. Uh, we see that in a couple of different places. Um, and he, even, like, so if you look at the verse handout, ver, uh, the scripture passages that you got, John chapter 10, verse 38, uh, the miracles are, are vital. He even says, um, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So he, he's pointing to the works as like validation for his ministry, but it's still not the main component. What he really wants for them to do is believe him. I want you to believe me, believe the teaching, believe the preaching. In fact, we find that that's really the central reason why he came. Look at Mark 1, 35-39, we read this a couple weeks ago in uh, the building block on Sunday morning. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. He said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Uh, so you can see that the people are desperate. They want, they, they're coming to him for that reason. And he knows this. He gets up early in the morning and goes on the outskirts of town to pray so that no one can find him. And when Peter finally does find him, he's like, hey, everybody back in the town that you just came from is wanting you come, to come back there and do more miracles. That's what they want. And Jesus says, the reason I came out here is so that we could move on to the next town so I could begin teaching and preaching. So it, central to his ministry is the teaching and preaching. Ancillary to that is the miracles. They provide evidence that his teaching and his preaching is valid. They also drive crowds to him, and they do have this kind of attraction portion to it. But his main aspect is teaching and preaching. It's central to his ministry. And so the, the pivotal to this work, though, is that what people are starting to see is that in his teaching, 
the main difference between Jesus and everybody else they can receive teaching from is that he has authority over the things that he's saying. He's teaching as one who has authority. So if you look at like John 7, 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And then in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, the scribes are essentially reiterating things that they know to be true of the Word. In the Old Testament, Jesus is telling them essentially new things. And so they're, they're realizing this guy seems to talk like he has control over the Old Testament. As he speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Right? So he's speaking differently than the scribes and Pharisees are in his teaching. Now, most people, especially today, when they think about Jesus' teaching, they think of a guy who, like the, the campaign we saw in the Super Bowl, that he gets this campaign. He's sort of a, oh, he, came, he came, he's washing feet. He's being really kind and gentle. And he's, hey, you be you. You know, uh, let, let's, do, let's do good to the poor. And, you know, kind of a moralistic sort of message, kind-hearted. But contrary to that, he's actually pushing really hard against sin. When the, when the people are caught in adultery and they're brought before Jesus at his feet, he is forgiving. We shouldn't forget that. But what does he always tell them? Go and sin no more. Under no circumstances is Jesus just tolerating the lifestyles that they're in. Uh, when Jesus is, calls Matthew to be his disciple, as we saw in Building Blocks on Sunday, there's a party that's being had at Matthew's house. There's sinners and tax collectors sitting around the table. And people often in today's culture want to point to that and go, see, Jesus is parting with the sinners. And he's fine with their lifestyle. It's not about that. It's bringing goodwill to all of them. No, they're actually following Jesus who is coming preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's telling them Sin is not tolerable in the kingdom. And, in, and so it, quite the opposite of being just a kind and fluffy, what I would call the hippie sort of Jesus, he's actually saying that entrance into the kingdom demands perfection. Which is even hard for us to hear. Perfection. Look at Matthew 5.48. This is where the part where the Sermon on the Mount gets real, all right? It's right here at the end of chapter 5. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or how about Matthew seven twenty one to 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of, the, of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or how about Matthew 5.8? Maybe one that you wouldn't traditionally go to. 
It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How many of you are checking that box? So it doesn't take long until you realize, here's what Jesus is saying, entrance to the kingdom of heaven is. Perfection. For you to realize in the Sermon on the Mount, that's not me. I'm not that. I can't meet the demands. I I heard somebody one time say, uh, what Jesus is really just wanting is for us to just follow the words of the Sermon on the Mount. If we do that, we'll be will be good. Okay? You be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Follow those words in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me know how it goes. Take two and call me in the morning. Right? <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't work. You cannot, I, I, as we went through Matthew a couple years ago, or when, however long that was, when was it? Ten years ago? Whatever it was. It took us ten years to get through it, I think. But uh, as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, I would t- I'll tell you this, just, you know, personally, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, was more impactful on me than anything I've probably ever st- had to study and prepare for and preach and teach. Because it's not long into it before you realize how morally bankrupt you are. How, how you're... I can't meet the demands of this. I mean, this is the same... Before he says that in Matthew 5.48, he says, uh, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman with lust in his heart, or with lust, he has committed adultery in his heart with her. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, whoever has been angry with his brother, whoever's called him a fool, is in danger of hell. I mean, it's not long into the Sermon on the Mount before you realize, oh, I see what he's doing. He's explaining to us what holiness actually is. You want to know what holiness actually is? Here's the Mosaic Law down here. God's holiness, keep going. This is, this is training wheels for holiness here in the Mosaic Law. You think I've come to abolish this? Psh, not abolish it, fulfill it. I want you to see what holiness actually is. You think it's don't commit murder? I'm telling you, anger in your heart. You think it's adultery? I'm saying lust in your heart. No, not abolish it. Fulfill it. And then you realize, oh, he's demanding perfection. That's what's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, at some point you realize, uh, no, I can't do that. As soon as I can advance the leg, there it goes. So naturally, none of the hearers particularly of the Sermon on the Mount, or of any of his teaching, for that matter, can meet the righteous standards that he's putting in front of them. But that seems to be the main point of his teaching. 
Those who seek His kingdom must understand their spiritual poverty and come to depend on Him as their sole means of entry. This is the reason why the Sermon on the Mount begins. The first words of Jesus is verse 3, where He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What He's demanding of them is, yes, perfection is required, but you need to understand you can't meet that perfection, and so you have to place your dependence on Me who is going to meet that, the demands of the kingdom for you. So, several chapters later in Matthew, in chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, this is in the middle of the scene, by the way. I love this scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. Is they're walking... They're walking down the road, and this you kind of you can piece together the scenes if you read all the gospels, especially the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can you can piece together the entire scene, and it's hilarious. But they're they're walking down the road, and they're all debating back and forth as to who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine why, because there's twelve people in human history who got a front row seat to everything Jesus did. And there's three in particular who got a real front row seat to everything. And in Matthew 18, this happens right after the transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John have gotten this front row seat to see Jesus transfigured in front of them. Okay, outside of the resurrection, maybe the crucifixion, there's probably not another scene I would love to go witness than the transfiguration. Because he is like it's glory unfurled. It's like here is this sort of peasant carpenter that's been walking around to them saying, I'm the son of God. And then all of a sudden he takes Peter, James, and John aside. And then he's standing there with Moses and Elijah. And they all of a sudden are like, I, you know, and like trying to, you know, can barely look at him and go, I see this peasant carpenter just changed in front of my eyes. And so Peter's like, hey, you want us to set up a tent for you and Elijah? We can all have a party right here. So you can imagine the scene after they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they're walking along the road and they're talking with each other and you know they're kind of hanging back from Jesus as he's walking ahead and you're like, you're never going to believe what we just saw. And so then they're like, now who do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Like, like we just got to see his glory unfurl. And Jesus is sort of like standing aloof to all this. He's like pretending like he doesn't know what's going on. And so he turns to them and asks them, what were you talking about? And and they're all like, nothing. (laughs) It's great. It's such a great scene. So so Jesus knows what they've been talking about and knows they've been battling back and forth as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And here's the shocking scene then in Matthew 18 where there's a crowd of kids around him and he takes a child and he pulls him close to him and he's knowing what they had been talking about says in 18, 3 to 4, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, some people read that and they go, you got to have faith like a child, meaning like you got to accept everything without thinking. And that's not true. That's not what he's saying. Children 
are the epitome of poverty. They have nothing. They have no status. They have no wealth. They've got no money. They've got nothing. Case in point, leave a child alone as an orphan, and what happens to them? They're not going to become the president, okay? They're not going to become a king. They're going to be forever poor because they have no status, they have nothing. So he brings this child to them after they've seen Jesus glorified in front of them, and he says, unless you turn and recognize you're a child in the kingdom, meaning you have to come to me in dependence. Unless you realize I am your only ticket to entrance, you're not getting in. How humbling is that for them in that moment to just cut low everything that they've been thinking up to this point? So here's Jesus' teaching, putting on them perfection and at the same time saying, I'm going to supply it. So if you have this worry about living this life of perfection, Jesus is coming in saying, it's not the life of perfection you've got to worry about. It's dependence on me that you've got to worry about. Okay. So, come on. Hang on, it's getting there. I can feel it. There it is. You know how it goes. Perhaps the most notable characteristic about Jesus' teaching ministry was his frequent use of parables. So anytime Jesus engaged in public teaching to the masses, he utilized parables as a form of storytelling. So we see that in Matthew 13, 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. He said nothing to them without a parable. So here's the picture, is the masses that are coming to Jesus, they all hear parables. Every single one of them hears a parable uh, when he's teaching. That's how he teaches. And that, we're even told in Matthew that that actually fulfills something in the Old Testament, in Psalm 78-2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Uh, and Matthew tells us that that's what his speaking in parables actually did, was at the very least fulfilled a point of prophecy that this is what the Messiah was going to do. He spoke in parables. And, and all the crowds that are coming to him, that's what they were hearing in his teaching. They're hearing parables, and they're going, man, what is this you know, strange thing that we're hearing? And again, whereas the Pharisees and the rabbis and all the teachers of the day took the traditions of the elders and explained it to them. This is what we believe as Jews. This is what's being taught in the Old Testament. This is what Moses is saying, reiterating this to them, reading it to them over and over again, um, and illustrating their meanings and things like that. And if the Pharisees or the Sadducees ever used a parable, it was much the way a modern preacher would use a parable or an illustration or something like that. It would be to clarify the point that's being made. But Jesus uses parables to give new instruction. Things that they had never thought about before. Who puts old wine in, or new wine in an old wineskin? This is a shortened form of a parable, essentially. 
And he, he uses this as a way of giving new teaching to explain why we don't fast, and the Pharisees do. Because that's old, and this is new, what we're doing. Right? So it's, that's part of the authority that's coming across to some of the crowds that are hearing these parables and understanding them. They're going, we've not heard this before. This is different. He's actually teaching a change of life. Right? This is not a fad diet. This is a lifestyle change, right? This is, that, this is what he's, he's giving to us. Now, this brings up the challenge of parables, okay? Um, on occasion, Jesus would conclude his parables, and even if he illustrates it with a metaphor, uses a metaphor, something like that, maybe that's not a full-blown parable, uh, he would say at the end of it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And of course, he doesn't mean that literally, does he? We would assume that the vast majority of the people that are coming to hear him actually do have ears. But notice he says this several times at the, at the conclusion of something that he says that's a little bit cryptic. Matthew eleven thirteen to 15 for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now he just said something that has a little bit of a cryptic kind of message to it. He is Elijah to come, and if you, if you know, you know. That's how we say it today. If, if you know, you know. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. You should understand, some of you are going to understand what I'm talking about. You have ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? So then he says uh, in, at the end of a parable of the sower of the seed, Matthew 13, 8-9, Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. In Matthew 13, 41-43, this is that run of parables in Matthew 13 that's you know, extensive. He says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, go all the way down. He says this a number of different times. Go all the way down to Revelation 2, verses 2-7. to He says this in almost everything He says to the churches. Talking to Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He does this throughout the letters to the churches in Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I know sometimes when we take a book like Revelation or maybe a parable or maybe something that Paul is saying or something that can kind of be a little bit confusing 
and uses metaphors and illustrations and things like this, sometimes the question that comes back from Christians is, well, why can't they just say it straight? Why can't they just tell it plainly? Well, you could say the same about Jesus, right? He gives the parable of the prodigal son or the whatever parable he's given, and, and there's the question from the audience, why can't you just say it straight? Why can't you just tell us what you're trying to say instead of hiding it in the, you know, different things that you're, the illustrations you're given? Well, many people think that the main reason that Jesus told parables was so that he could simplify truths, so that he could make it easier to understand or make it maybe even more palatable to people. And Part of that's true in that parables do illustrate, they clarify for those who have ears to hear, as we've already seen, but they actually have the opposite effect on those whose heart is hardened. Parables actually confuse. And it turns out, hey, straight from Jesus' mouth, don't shoot the mailman, I'm just delivering the mail. Jesus is actually going to say, that's one of the reasons I teach it in parables. Hard passage to read. It's there in Matthew 13, 10 to, 5, 10 to 15. As soon as I get there, it's past the Revelation passages. It's on page 6. So the disciples, it turns out, have the same question you do. They come to Jesus and they say, Hey, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Why do you speak in parables? They can't hear. If they could hear, if they did hear what I was saying, they would turn and repent, and I would forgive them. So then just say it to them plainly. Apparently, That's not what he's wanting to do. His parables are a way of separating, not just a way of clarifying. They're a way of separating the people who have ears to hear and the people who don't. That's why he ends so many of them with the charge, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the symbolism hides the truth from anyone who has not been born again 
by God's Spirit. Notice that when Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3, he could just lay out everything that he means there for Nicodemus. Just give it to him plainly. Listen, here's what I am. Here's that, see that blind guy over there? Boom, he's healed. Nicodemus sees him. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this is because I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming down here to earth, born of a virgin, not just to heal, but I'm actually coming to forgive you of sin. Here's how it's going to work. You can't get to heaven because righteousness is, that's required is, is perfect, and you're not perfect. You're never going to be. And so I have to die for your sins so that you would be forgiven, so that you would have eternal life. So you have to believe in me in order to have eternal life. You have to follow me. Otherwise, I don't care if you're a Pharisee or a scribe, you're, you're not getting there. He can lay everything out to him plainly, and he doesn't. He doesn't give it to him like that. He says you've got to be born again. And he uses an ambiguous phrase that can be mean born from above or born again. So that Nicodemus is further confused by saying, how can I be born again? I have to go back in my mom's womb? And Jesus says, you've got to be born of the Spirit. Spirit blows where it, wind blows where he wishes. Which wind and spirit are also the same word. And so that throws everything into further confusion. It doesn't clarify much for Nicodemus. You can imagine Nicodemus there at night, scratching his head going, Huh? <laughs> I went in there with questions, and now I have new questions, and I'm not sure I got any resolution to my old questions. <laughs> right? So the symbolism that he's giving is confusing. So look at what he says, John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 5 to 8. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What? Verse 5 is really key. He says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think what he's pointing back to is Ezekiel 36 there. Where Jesus, or God, sorry, promises the new covenant. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will put my Spirit within you. So I will cleanse you from the outside, and with the Spirit on the inside, I will cleanse you from the inside. So Jesus is saying, how can you be a teacher in Israel and not know what that means? It's Ezekiel 36. It's right there. It's obvious. This is what God is going to do. And so unless one has been cleansed on the outside by God, been given God's Spirit from the inside, he cannot have ears to hear, and therefore be born again and understand Jesus' teaching, and grow. So what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4? If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So now they're not only blinded by their own will, they're not only blinded by God's will, they're also blinded by Satan's will too. All of them bending to God's will. So, then Jesus came. His teaching is not only to instruct 
and to help people understand the kingdom of God, He came also as a judgment on those who don't want to hear truth. So His teaching in parables is a form of divine judgment. The fact that you can't hear and understand what He's saying is judgment on you. It means you're deaf. And your deafness means that there's no Spirit of God in you to hear and to respond. So Simeon, when he sees Mary and the child, he's waiting at the temple, he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this is Luke 2.34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Many are going to hear his teaching, and this is going to be the beginning of the end for them. They're going to realize when he starts teaching, and they are deaf, where they stand with God. So his teaching is a divine judgment in that capacity. Look at what he says in Matthew 10, 34-35. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's dividing. And his parables are intentionally designed to divide those who have ears to hear and those who do not. So then, there, is the, there are the ones, there are the ones who are deaf that we just saw, the ones who have spiritual ears to hear and understand Jesus have had them opened by the divine initiative of God. And he did this through being born again, which is exactly what Jesus tells him. So the reason that you would come to depend on Christ as your provider of salvation is because you understand in the Sermon on the Mount perfection is required and that you don't meet it. That means you have ears to hear. The reason that you would have ears to hear is because God gave you His Spirit to hear. Now, how do we know that? We'll look at Matthew 16, 13-17. Famous passage, you've heard it before. Jesus and the disciples are standing there. And Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, you're so smart. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Or, how about John 10, 
Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. That's the definition of not having ears to hear. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not smart enough. No. Because you're not good enough. No. Because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or, this parallels perfectly with other things that he says in John about how salvation works. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you back up seven verses before that, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I want you to just keep the logic of those two verses together in your mind. One, no one actually comes to me unless the Father draws them. Okay? So there's no entrance unless the Father actually does the work. Divine initiative, right? He takes the initiative, pulls them to Christ, and no one comes unless that happens. Well, then you go, okay, well, he, he pulls a whole bunch of people. Some come, some don't. No, nope. that's not what he says. Back up seven verses, 37, he says, all that the Father give me, come to me. That means God is batting a thousand when it comes to salvation. He never misses a pitch. Not one. He's the one responsible to bring them to Christ, and all that he brings comes. Okay? So we can talk all day about how it all works. We can argue about Calvinism and Arminism all we want. But at some point, we've got to come back to these two verses and say, this is Jesus telling you how it works. As plainly as he can. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's hard to hear. Not because you don't understand it. It's because you do understand it that it's hard. That you go, I don't like the implications of that. Fair enough. I get that. Who would you rather trust with salvation? You? I don't want to trust me for salvation. I would rather trust God to work that out. For someone who bats a thousand and sustains his children, I'll just trust him on that. He's got that part of it figured out. That he's got an elect and all those things, and those things make me real nervous, and I get kind of scared about it, and I think to myself, well, what about my children? What about grandchildren? What about my neighbors? What about my family members? What about all those people? I don't know how all that works, but I know what it says right there, and that's true, and I don't know what else to do but just say, okay, well, that's how it works. It doesn't change anything about what I'm required to do. It still means that i got to share. I'm told to. 
Also, the spirit that he's put within me drives me to. Changes nothing about my obligations. What does it mean for the person who you're sharing with? Changes nothing about their obligations. They're still confronted with the same options. It does explain why they make one choice over the other. It does explain why some hear and some don't. It does explain that, for sure. Changes nothing about our obligations. So the parables, you know, like any good illustration, they obviously arouse interest. They pique, they, they increase the attention in the minds. People are thinking through what he's saying. And especially in the minds of those who are probably like a lot of us in here. All of us in here. Your mind isn't hard set against Christ or anything like that. But you're, you struggle through the parables and you go, man, oh, I really want to i got to think about that for a long time, and i got to toss that over in my mind. Just because initially you don't get what all is being said in a parable, or you don't understand the depths of it, doesn't mean you're not saved. That's not what he's talking about. It's actually designed to pique your interest and to make you dive deeper. What does that mean? What does he mean when he says that? To cause you to ask questions. Those are evidences that you do have the Spirit of God in you. The imagery that's present in the parables, that's familiar to the prophets, if you go back to the prophets, they will do this quite a bit, or give at least some sort of symbolic imagery and things like this. Um, It's present there. Obviously in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery It's difficult to sort through. I get it. But these also function in a way of remembering the truths of Jesus' message for later recollection and for communicating complex doctrine in short sound bites. It's one thing for Jesus to say, hey, God loves you. God wants His children to repent. And when they repent, he runs to them and embraces them. And also, don't be judgmental towards those who repent. Don't be judgmental about the lives that they've lived before their repentance. Or he could tell you the parable of the prodigal son. And they communicate in this paragraph all these complex realities. So, the book of Revelation does the same thing. Here are these complex images, but they communicate some very powerful points. So, for us, who desire to know Christ, to grow, it's on us to seek the meaning of these parables, to to grow in understanding them, to give ourselves to the Word. And when 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 we want to just check out, I don't want to... You know what? I don't want it. We'll run away from it. It might be testifying to something deeper going on inside. There's something to apathy, you understand. This is the reason I'll sometimes talk about boredom, particularly when it comes to church, when it comes to sermons, 
when it comes to the Bible reading, when it comes to the teaching, when it comes to the songs, when it comes to these kinds of things. Boredom is going to start to overtake you sometimes. It's on us to pay attention, and the reason is because boredom is actually working against you. It's, it's a spiritual deterrent. It's driving you away from Christ. That's the reason it is so vitally important. No matter what is going on in a church service, to fight to apply your mind to what's happening. Whether it's teaching or preaching or anything. Because that, that boredom that's trying to overcome you is not just simply, I didn't have a good night's sleep last night. There's temptation there. There's spiritual deterioration there. There's deafness of ears and blindness of eyes there. So you have to fight. Questions? James. Yeah, that is a good parable in the Old Testament. Samuel coming to David. Uh, Nathan coming to David. Yeah, Nathan coming to David and saying, uh, hey, here was a guy. And he communicates all of David's sin in one little story to the point where David is like, yeah, yeah. And then what happened? And then what happened? Crush the guy. Kill him. Send him to me. I'll kill him. You are the man. Great. Perfect parable. Timothy? They did. We haven't gotten there in history yet, though. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Whoops. <laughs> it sort of, uh, yeah, kind of ran into the fate, didn't they? Uh, one way or another, yeah. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for its meaning and its impact. And we pray that you sharpen our focus, sharpen our minds, increase our appetites, and drive our desire to see your word, to understand it, to hear it being taught and preached, and desire more of it. I pray that you would increase for every single one of us, me and every person in here, that you would increase our appetite for your word that we would seek it out, we would desire it, we would think about it every day, that we would toss it over in our minds, we would try to understand more, we would ask questions, and we would seek those answers in your word, and, and seek those with our friends as we talk about the Bible, and we would seek those in our, in our small groups, in all kinds of ways, we would seek to grow in understanding your word even better. So we pray that you would increase our desire for it, and there we would find growth, we would find maturity. We would be a kind of people who are mature, not just in knowledge, not just in the kind of knowledge that, that puffs up. Certainly we don't want that. We want to be mature in understanding and application. We want it to apply to our lives. We want to actually do something about it. We want it to move us into evangelism and into good works to the people that are around us. Not to gain anything. We have all of that in Christ, but to give evidence to show because we are included in your family and we all we want to do with all of our lives is live to please you. We pray that you would put that within us, grow that in us. 
over time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.